When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast and intellectual history. I'm your host today, Benjamin Phillips, and I am interviewing Dr. Rebecca Kingston, uh, author of Plutarch's Prism. Welcome, Dr. Kingston. How are you? I'm fine, and thank you so much, Benjamin, for this opportunity. I, I really appreciate uh, being able to talk about my book. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we're happy to have you. It's an enjoyable read, I must say. Um so jumping into this book, um, let, let's begin just by judging it by its cover, which I suppose if you're listening to this podcast, you can't see, but it is a, a very, very attractive uh, cover, even uh, in this Ideas in Context series. Um, Dr. Kingston, what can you tell us about this series and kind of the school of thought that it's associated with? Um, right. So so I, I did deliberate about where to publish it, but uh, it's published within the Ideas in Context series uh, by Cambridge University Press, which is, of course, the sort of baby, I guess, in its inception of, of Quentin Skinner's. So it had initially been um, associated with what is largely called the Cambridge School, of doing political theory, which basically means that uh, there is an interest in looking at ideas and context. So Skinner, of course, is a historian by training. And so the idea was that you can make better sense of texts in political theory uh, by looking at the uh, political, social, cultural context of the time and seeing what the text is doing or saying in view of that background. Right. The opposition is, or the contrast has been drawn sometimes between a, a ver- more vertical history across too much time and horizontal in time. Um, how, how have you, Dr. Skinner is a historian, like how, how have you approached this as a political scientist? How is that? Right. How have you so, been able to bring um, a new twist? Uh, you know, I was trained uh, as a doctoral student by a student of Quentin Skinner's, James Tully. So, um, there is a certain continuity there. And of course, in terms of these disciplinary lines, it's um, 
it's not always cut and dry. Um, but uh, I suppose uh, what might be a little bit different from and obviously the book is in the series and therefore does consider context. Um, but I am also concerned, and in fact, arguably even Skinner himself is concerned, even though in his early years he would not um, admit it, um, about the uh, potential contemporary uptake of the arguments that, that one's making about these thinkers. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, what, what motivated you to, to work on this study now? And why do we have this book in our hands? Right. Well, it's a book which was, uh, I suppose, um, comes from several different uh, motivations, or it's a, a, a confluence, I guess you might say, of, of different strands. So a first strand is purely academic, intellectual, my own trajectory. So having been trained uh as a PhD student in the history of ideas, but with an interest in French political thought, I read all the requisite texts in the history of civic humanist thought, Republican thought, um, uh, and uh, I, and as a description, of course, of what was going on in the early modern period, And while all of those readings and discussions were of um, invaluable um, importance to me in my own intellectual development, I always felt that there was something in these accounts that missed the spirit of the French tradition. Uh, So I had always sort of grappled with that over many years. And... uh, I also subsequently, as a result of my work on book on Montesquieu, became interested in emotions as a, an issue. And so I uh, became more interested in questions of moral psychology. Um, and I also was an avid reader of Montaigne and Rousseau and realized that one thing that brought these two thinkers together was a very intense commitment to the work of Plutarch. So I thought that maybe what was missing from some of these accounts of the evolution of early modern thought, and particularly how the French case fit into that, was attention to the place of Plutarch in this longer tradition. So so that's also part of the motivation. So it was a sort of retraining for me. I had to go back and take several years of trying to learn ancient Greek and reading Plutarch's opus, which was huge and extensive. Um, And in the course of that also, of course, uh, became interested in the particular way in which Plutarch was very, um, saw politics in the public realm in in quite a unique way, I thought, uh, which was I think salutary in the current context in which there's concern about a the ethics of public office, but a broad cultural shift in which uh, I guess what I would call an anti-politics attitude. Um, so I thought that the work of Plutarch could be particularly helpful not only to 
illuminate what was going on in the early modern period and address these questions of the history, the intellectual history of the development of the French tradition um, within the broader European context, um, but also to help us think about another alternative between a sort of blind deference to the political class or a blanket rejection of politics and what it offers. I thought that Plutarch was helpful in giving us parameters in which we can try to discern what is unique about politics, what can be good about politics, but also how to ensure that we reject that which is not good. Right. It's kind of diving into the, the meat of the book itself. For those listening who might be more interested in the early modern side of things, help us get our bearings on who Plutarch is and what contribution he's making or he initially made in, in his own time. To- right. So Plutarch was or is uh, known as a um, intellectual living in the first century AD. Um, so to put that in context, living in Greece at the time, of course, Rome had made that transition from a republic to an imperial power. It had hegemony over the Greek territory. So while Plutarch in a certain way is considered to be a disciple of Plato, um, he's not writing in the similar context as Plato, who was obviously living in Athens as it was going through different transitions between democracy and oligarchy and so on. So Plutarch was living in a very different politics than that of Plato, but he was very conscious of that cultural legacy as as many Greeks were at the time. And he was interested in thinking about how one could speak about virtue and politics through the lens of historical examples, both from his own Greek legacy, as well as that of the Roman world itself. Um, And so he's known for, as the author of what we now see as two works, the first is called The Lives, which is uh, a series of not, he doesn't call them biographies, he calls them lives, and we can perhaps get into why he says that. Uh, Placing in parallel an account of a prominent figure within the Greek tradition alongside a prominent figure in the Roman tradition and sort of playing off the account of their evolution of their character and their work within the broader context of their times to develop a deeper understanding of moral psychology and to derive lessons, or at least to let the reader to derive lessons from that. So there are the lives, which is about 23 pairs of these lives, uh, which is sometimes called the parallel lives. And then he also wrote a series of essays, um, which have been over the years compiled together into one work that is often called the Moralia. Um, 
or the moral essays, which which are very diverse. Again, so some of those would be directly political. Some would be more just marriage advice, and I believe there's even a couple of like health and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so these lives, they are mostly of political figures, correct? Political and military figures. So some are generals, some people who have somewhat of a public prominence in the ancient world. Right. And so you hinted at this as well. What's the distinction that Plutarch is trying to drive out here between writing lives and writing biography? Right. So... Biography is an account of the accomplishments and the contributions of particular individuals. And what Plutarch was wanting to do in writing lives as opposed to biographies is, first of all, he would write with the understanding that the public of his time would already know about these figures and know about their accomplishments. So he wasn't trying to say anything new or anything um, uh, uh, making extensive arguments about where they stood in the course of history. He was interested in revealing their inner person. And so one of the things that he's well known for suggesting is, is often these inner aspects of a person are more clearly demonstrated or more light can be shed on who a person is through the quieter moments of their life. So, for example, um, Alexander, right, who's known for as the great conqueror of, of um the ancient world, he tells a story about Alexander as a, as a very young boy wanting to tame his horse, Bucephalus. And it's in the way in which Alexander treated that private moment that we get some insight into who Alexander was. So it's on the quieter moments that uh, the what makes a person tick, right? What what is most revealing about them as a person? That's a, that's what's of interest to Plutarch, in particular. Yeah. So, like you, very interested in a particularly moral psychology. Right. Um, yeah. But when we step aside from the Plutarch that we now have in our, our lobes and everything, and meet him again in the Italian Renaissance. Um, there are a couple extra works that have been attributed to him uh, that influence the way he's received. C- catch us up on, on that interesting case of, was it forgery or just, just files in the wrong place? Out of this right. Thing? Well, as um, as you may know, Benjamin, as well, as a, as a uh, intellectual historian of the of late antiquity, there are not clear um, and unbroken um, lines of reception in many of these texts. So while Plutarch was, I think, quite well known in his own day as a writer and author, of course, with the fall of the Roman Empire, um, some of his works were lost, although there were many people in Byzantium who were 
clear fans of Plutarch. And over the course of history, there were certain scholars who would make efforts to retrieve what they could of the manuscripts and transcribe them and so on. Uh, But in this process, some people got some things wrong, right? So some manuscripts that they had found and compiled and, and put down on lists as attributed to Plutarch, in fact, were not. So, so there, are, there are texts that we thought for many years up into the 18th century were written by Plutarch, such as an essay on the education of children. Um, and there's a very uh, influential essay throughout the early modern period called On Homer, um, thought to have been written by Plutarch, but classical scholars today now recognize that um, because of vocabulary used, right, and and so on, there's uh, investigative techniques that one can use and uh, have found that this attribution was wrong. Um, So, yeah, these are sort of detective work in in history, um, but it does still, as I suggest in the book, the recognition that these texts were thought to have been written by Plutarch and were um, widely um, discussed and debated, particularly that essay on the education of children, means that they're relevant for the whole story of Plutarch reception. Absolutely. Do you think that particularly, well, particularly early on before this was recognized, do you think that it made people more attentive to you know, themes and strains of Plutarch's corpus that were already there? Or do you think it kind of prompted an artificial reading to, to have these be the famous ones? Um, that's, that's, that's a bit of a difficult question because there's the Plutarch opus is so diverse, right? So it's hard to even say in objective terms, you know, exactly um because the essays, as you suggested in the Morelia, are so broad. So attention to one thing, um, you know, whether it's hard to say what was most important to Plutarch, given the extent of, of those writings. But um, I do think, and one of the, the things that um, I have yet to mention, but was very important, is that uh, a bit of a mystery, but um, John of Salisbury, right, in... Um, the early uh, or in in the medieval period, wrote a letter and wrote a whole treatise in which he presumed to be paraphrasing uh, a, a writing of Plutarch. But scholars have never found this manuscript that he was supposedly paraphrasing, and it's generally assumed that he was using the authority of Plutarch to make an argument about themes that were relevant to Plutarch's work um, in um, in his Polycraticus. And so uh, this was a way in which Plutarch became particularly associated with notions of political education, I think, um, and relevant to politics. So I guess in a sense, um, it is a way in which more attention was paid to Plutarch in in reference to political theory, political thought in particular, because although the 
figures in his lives are individuals with a public prominence. Uh, arguably, when he was writing the lives, he was first and foremost interested in the theories of moral, moral virtue that could be distilled and used the prominence of these individuals as a way to ensure that they were a common reference for individuals. So he was perhaps less trying to develop a specifically public ethics in his analysis of figures in the lives and more just trying to shed light on individual moral psychology and virtue. But through these associations, such as through uh, John of Salisbury, uh, recognizing and suggesting that that Plutarch was particularly interested in advising rulers, uh, more attention was paid to that aspect. I'm not saying it wasn't there in his work, but it perhaps it brought it out and and made it more salient for readers of Plutarch in the early modern period. That's very good. One of those lovely little quirks. I mean. I don't know why people think intellectual history is boring. There's so much strange stuff that goes on. Um, but in terms of this reception, you say that virtue politics should be seen as the dominant theme of, uh, of, of Renaissance and humanist politics. Can you just kind of help us understand uh, what this term is that it's so essential to the book? Yeah, so, so virtue politics... Um, is a term most recently uh, argued by James Hankins, right? At the title of his most recent book. And that book, I suppose, has to be understood in the context of those broader arguments developed by the Cambridge School um, and, and longer standing arguments about the nature of Italian Renaissance thought in particular. So um, there are questions about what, how we characterize humanism, what was so important about humanism, and um, drawing on um, some revisions to earlier historians of the Renaissance. Uh, John Pocock, in particular, uh, developed this notion of civic humanism as a way to understand uh, political thought of the Italian Renaissance with the idea that uh, the notion of developing a sense of citizenship and with a predominance of an attachment to an idea of liberty was an argument that was initially developed in the Italian context and then exported towards the rest of Europe and influencing um, various strands of early modern thought called civic humanism. Um, this was somewhat, and, and for, for uh, Pocock, this was largely Aristotelian. Um, Quentin Skinner uh, provides a, what he sees as a corrective to this account that no, it's not a Greek inspiration, it's a Roman inspiration, largely derived from Cicero. And we should be calling it perhaps republicanism or civic republicanism rather than civic humanism. But again, it was largely rooted in the Italian context and then exported to England and across Europe and became a dominant um, school and discourse, I suppose, language of politics in the early modern period. 
And both of these schools see themselves as arguing for a distinct trend from that of the Lockean idea of rights, which initially had been the way in which people might want to describe the development of ideas from the 17th century onward. That um, so, so part of what was at stake for Pocock's argument is suggest that in the context of the American founding, there weren't just arguments about rights and property and so on, but that there was a whole language of citizenship derived from this school of civic humanism that rivaled that of the Lockean rights language. So going back to the initial question then, um, what James Hankins is suggesting is that some of these uh, arguments about humanism being largely centered around questions of liberty and questions of regime form and citizenship um, are not an accurate depiction of what the literature in the Italian Renaissance was actually doing. And that if you do the survey of that literature, you'll find that there was more concern about uh, virtue in the individual um, and how you could ensure that either rulers become virtuous or that the virtuous individual is the one who is ruling um, and that there was less a concern about the type of regime and more concerned about the nature of the soul of the individual or the, 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 the character of the individual who eventually might be involved in politics. So, so for me, right, I, I suggest that Plutarch definitely has an interest in questions of virtue, but that he, his understanding is not limited to what Hankin suggests is the need for virtue in people in positions of power, because what Plutarch is doing, and, and the suggestion is that Plutarch was brought into the French tradition through avenues that sort of circumvented the Italian Renaissance to some degree. So Plutarch is acknowledging the importance of good character, but suggests that there's a particular understanding of the public sphere, which in some ways skews um, our understanding of ethics and that we must also understand the particular sphere of politics and the nature of the public sphere that means that virtues are not always um, practiced in uh, exactly the same ways as we might expect in private life. And I don't mean by that to invoke a sort of Machiavellian exceptionalism here. It's, prob it's best to illustrate this through a certain example. So, for example, in the case of friendship. So, obviously, um, friends are important and important for the development of character. Traditionally, the idea in Aristotle is that friendship is uh, a way to practice the virtues, for example. Um, friendships are important for um, allowing us to develop those habits that are necessary for the development of character. Um, yet, uh, in public life, right, how one deals with friends 
may need to be different than how one deals with friends in a private context. And Plutarch acknowledges that in his Precepts of Statecraft essay. He suggests, well, one way to deal with trying to be completely fair in public life might be to say not to listen to your friends at all, to just try to have a sort of objective, um, distanced, um, completely objective perspective in which you disregard your friends. But Plutarch suggests that's not an appropriate way to deal with challenges of public life because sometimes friends can be helpful in terms of um, telling you the truth or can be helpful in terms of um, elucidating certain matters. Um, and so one has, but, but one can't also give in to friends and their requests and demands um, and give them preference in all matters of public life. So one has to exercise uh, one's relationship with friends in a judicious way in public life that is distinct from how one would deal with friendships in a private setting. So that's one way in which the virtues, virtues of generosity and um, attentiveness to others and so on, um, may require a certain rethinking in a public setting. Yeah. So is that why, I mean, you keep speaking of, particularly with Pocock and Skinner, of civic humanism. Uh, in the subtitle of this book, we have public humanism. Is that the diff- distinction that you're arguing there is this conception of the public sphere? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, public humanism is constituted by several different characteristics. So, for example, um, one of the things that you find in Plutarch's work and that you don't find as much in either a tradition of virtue politics in the Hankin sense or the um, civic humanist is for Plutarch a much strong dignified, elevated sense of public service. That even in the lowliest duties that one is performing, if one is doing it for in a position of um, public office, uh, one is doing something that is very dignified. And in fact, there is a certain sometimes at times for, for Plutarch an invocation of the of the platonic image of the sun, right? Um, uh, sort of shedding light on things that, that, the, that the public official tries to instill justice in the community, but not in a, uh, not always in a way that is so far removed from the earth, but recognizing that the sun sort of bends to the arc of the earth in the rising and the setting, and so that you have to um, try to negotiate an understanding of justice in a higher sense, but with the particularities of the context in which you're associated. So it's a higher, more dignified sense of public life, but also greater attentiveness to moral psychology in all sorts of different ways. So I mentioned the the management of friendships, but also, for example, the management of envy in public life and how one can um, negotiate that in ways that, again, promote the cause of of justice um, 
So understanding what of oneself, one's own motivate motivations in public life, understanding the the characteristic of the people that one is um, governing. Again, we're not talking about a democratic system in Flutarch's own um, context. So that's why I use that that language there. Yes. Um. So you, you mentioned a second ago, too, that the Greeks are getting, or the, sorry, the French are getting this, well, I guess that I just dropped the spoiler. The French are getting this directly from the Greeks uh, often and not just the Italians. Um, wh- why is there this different focus in the French Renaissance? Well, um, I suppose maybe it's partly serendipity, but um, so... Uh, there are several individuals, but but France was always known in literature on Renaissance um, history as having a particularly um, unique association with Greek. Um, so um, Guillaume Boudet was one of the preeminent scholars of Greek in the Renaissance. Um, but the, the three Byzantine individuals who um, were instrumental in this were um, John Lascaris, who was a Byzantine um, scholar, who, and, and some of these Byzantine scholars, of course, were um, coming out of the, um, coming out of Byzantium, because, of course, we all know about 1453, right, <laughs> which was when... Um, uh, Constantinople was taken over by um, by the Eastern forces, and so there were a certain number of refugees coming to Venice or coming to the to Western Europe. Not only bringing the scholarship that they were um, developing in the East in Constantinople, but also with uh, an important political agenda trying to convince uh, the powers of the West to save Constantinople, to to do a sort of counter-invasion. And, um, of course, I guess maybe some felt that the the king in France might have been the best, um, one of the better... Uh, people to try to convince at the time to to um, put funds aside for that purpose. I mean that that cause was never um, successful, but um, Jean Lascaris came to France um, and um, and was someone who helped the translation, who circulated manuscripts of Plutarch. Um, Plutarch was one of his favorite authors. He brought manuscripts into the King's Library in Paris, helped Boudet in his understanding and knowledge of Plutarch, helped Claude de Seyssel, who um, also um, had translated some of Plutarch from the Latin that had been translated from the Greek into the Latin by um, people before him. Another... um, uh, another refugee from the East, a fellow called Nicholas Segundinos, had translated uh, Precepts of Statecraft and it had been published in Latin 
Again, that became translated into French by Geoffrey Torrey in 1532. Um, and the Collège de France, which was established by Francis I, um, also set up, uh, had a sort of institutionalized professor for the learning of Greek as well as Latin. So, so the cause of Francis the first, the, the, the impetus to establish a learned culture, I guess, within France, was also helpful for the uh, greater interest in in scholarship in in Greek, which is one of the reasons why Erasmus um, came to Paris um, and for many years was working alongside Boudet. I mean, he, he left, they, they sort of um, broke ties um, later, but, uh, yeah. So, so as you argue, he's, he's very influential in these elite circles. Uh, but then after a while we get a, a full translation of the lives finally. Um, how does that kind of open up the gate and, and sh- shift the tra- tradition of reception here? Right. So a huge watershed is 1559. So that's the year when Jacques Amiot publishes his translation of the lives, a sort of painstaking work. So Jacques Amiot, there were several people who had had sort of embarked on the project. Francis I was uh, very keen to have Plutarch translated in his entirety, and he had hired several people to do this, but one after the other, it didn't quite work out, and a very young Jean de Selp died um, in the without finishing it, but Amiot was successful even after Francis I had died. He continued on with the translation project and then eventually translated the Morelli as well. Um, And that is seen as a monumental um, contribution in all sorts of ways. I mean, certain scholars of the French language will say it transformed the French language because it Greekified the French language. And at that time, of course, French was beginning to be standardized. Law was beginning to be issued in French as opposed to Latin and so on. And so it became a very important cultural moment. Um, And this translation of the lives very soon after was translated into English by Thomas North, um, who, of course, uh, whose version of the lives is well known to have influenced Shakespeare, for example, um, and brought uh, the entirety of the lives. There had been largely a lot of uh, largely moral essays that had been translated into English, some, some due to translations of Erasmus's Latin essays brought to England, given as uh, gifts to patrons, as one did at the time. Those were translated into English, um, but the lives in its entirety had not been done in English until the work of Thomas North. Um, so that also made Plutarch's work much more accessible in England and led to a wide variety of of adaptations. Um, And so kind of, I mean, there's so many thinkers and moments and shifts in this tradition um, that we could jump into more. And I guess if you are interested in listening, you should get the book. Um, But kind of as you you land the plane uh, in your conclusion, 
what do you think Plutarch has to say or this tradition has to say for us today uh, in, in the political moment that we're in in the English world? Right. Well, yeah, so I think there's a lot of huge benefit in reading Plutarch today. I mean, one of the ways in which I describe Plutarch's contribution is that it gives us an understanding of of politics that is both um, uh, a sort of moral story, but with a realist twist, right? So that it's not an account of politics that is so high-minded and so sort of drenched in discussion of goodness and virtue that it doesn't acknowledge some of the more difficult features of human life. So on the one hand, it offers us an understanding and hope right, for um, good politics. And what I mean by good politics is a sense of uh, dignified, um, an understanding of politics as a pursuit of justice, as a pursuit of the public good, um, that people can have proper motivations concerning these things and entering public life, um, but with an acknowledgement that there are certain things going on in the public realm, certain people are motivated excessively by honor, there's uh, envy, there is um, certain malice, and that these things can't be ignored, but that you can manage them in ways for the good. Um, so I think an understanding that there is both noble purpose or can be noble, not saying that everyone entering public life um, has that noble purpose, but attention to the fact that there are competing motivations for entering into public life can help not only those in public life, but particularly citizens who are now given the responsibility of in democratic um communities of choosing and electing public officials to pay more attention to uh, questions of character, to questions of motivation, and um, being able to read, right, uh, not in, in, a, in a broad sense, read character, to read individuals, pay attention to the quieter moments of their, um, of their uh, persona to shed light on who they are as a way to make citizens better judges when they uh, go to the polls. It may not always be about the policy and it may not always be about what um, public officials are promising. It, it may be more about what makes them tick and reading the type of literature that tries to develop the capacities of individuals to understand these sorts of motivations would it would be, I think, a helpful tool in uh, improving democratic life. For those who, who want to take that charge and take that up, where would be the best place to start uh, with reading Plutarch, maybe some of the best translations or publishers to find him in? Oh, well, the lives are available in multiple translations, although to take up the lives in and of itself is um, 
is a huge enterprise. I mean, pe- people might want to listen to the lives in an audiobook, for example. There are podcasts and audiobooks that offer um, offer versions of the lives that are helpful. There are also the the essay. Some of the essays are really impo- are really interesting, and as you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, quite diverse. So one of the essays that I argue had a huge impact on Hobbes, for example, is how to profit from your enemies. Um, It's not the type of theme that you would necessarily think of attributing to Plutarch, but it's an interesting account. Um, And and, um, yes, there's, uh, so some of the moral essays might be a helpful place to start. You also might want to start reading someone who was immersed in Plutarch. So maybe even starting with someone like Montaigne, who was a huge disciple of Plutarch. And Montaigne's essays are always just such a delight to read. Um, And that may also um, help to give you a taste, a sense of of the nature of Plutarch's work as well. Well, thank you. I wish we could have more time to just plumb the depths of this book. Um, but again, if, if you're listening and this is whetted your appetite, um, Plutarch's Prism, Cambridge University Press. Uh, subtitle, of course, is Classical Reception and Public Humanism in France and England, uh, 1500 to 1800. Uh, I hope this has, has interested you if you're listening. Um, please give it a read. It's a very well worth your time. Um, Dr. Kingston, any, anything else you're working on at the moment that we can be looking forward to from you? Well, one of the projects that I'm thinking about, it's in its very early stages, um, is a history of the notion of respect, a conceptual history, intellectual history of respect. Um, I suppose one way would be how respect, which perhaps was seen as initially developed in an aristocratic and uh, and uh, hierarchical cultural setting, how respect became respectable as sort of a foundational um, notion for for democratic uh, uh, culture today. So that sounds very interesting. We might have to have you back on to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much, Benjamin. This has been a great pleasure for me. Likewise, thank you very much for coming on.